Wow. Thank you, guys. Sometimes we sing about the gospel so much we forget just the wow element of the gospel, don't we? Atonement was made, sins forgiven. Uh, Oh, Lord, forgive us for forgetting about the wow. I like being around people that help me remember the wow moments. I'm a little bit like that sometimes with my kids, but probably the best wow moment guy I know is Eric Taunas, right? When when, When you're with Eric, you get a lot of wow moments of just things that you don't recognize. Um, initially by yourself. And so one that sticks out of my mind, last year, um, Eric and I were going to the theology conference, happened to be in Baltimore. And so I had the idea, why don't I take my oldest daughter, Damaris, with me? And then he thought, that'd be fun. I'll take Carolyn. And then my brother ended up, he's not even a theologian, but he thought, it'll be fun to go to a theology conference with my daughter. So he brought his, and we were all in Washington, D.C. for three days before doing a daddy-daughter D.C. time. It was actually really, really fun. And there were just so many funny stories from that time. But one, one really great, wow, Eric Taunus moment is we're in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Um, and there's so many wow moments going on in there, but the, there's one room that was kind of reserved for air, like um, space travel, like Apollo mission kind of stuff, and it was literally just like a kid's science experiment where you just have a wall that has the planets of our solar system kind of looking exactly like they really are and perfectly to scale. So we're standing there, we're looking at it, and there was a lot of comments like, man, I knew Jupiter was big, but I had no idea it was that much bigger than Earth. Just those kinds of comments were coming out. And we're all standing, there's other people in the room as well, it's kind of dark, and on the, so you're staring here at all these planets, and then kind of right here on the wall is this sort of orange-yellow concave wall. And, and as you look at it, it comes up pretty soon, that's actually the sun's surface in comparison to the planets. And the sun's like bigger than three of the rooms of the Smithsonian. And when it hit Eric, that was the sun, he went, no way, guys, that's the sun! No way! That's the sun! That's the sun! It went on for at least seven minutes. And everyone in that room of the Smithsonian was laughing at him at this point as well as my brother and I because it was so true. And we weren't just laughing to make fun. It was like, it's pretty mind-blowing. The sun is that much bigger. When's the last time we ever did that with Scripture? When's the last time that we ever just kind of hit us like, wow, no way. No way Jesus actually forgave our sins. It should be blowing our mind all the time. Shouldn't there just be wow moments constantly with Scripture? But since most of us have grown up, many of us at least have grown up in the church, that we completely lose these wow moments? I mean, even just think about just Genesis alone. God created by speaking. No way. No way. And then he he forms humans by dust and breathes life into them. What? What? Are you kidding me? And then the serpent, the serpent says, oh, you won't surely die. God's a liar. Shut up. No, that didn't just happen. We should have our minds blown all the time. But because we know these stories so well, it hardly ever happens, doesn't it? And particularly now, particularly now we're in the Gospels, these are stories we know really, really well. And I'm about to read our passage for today. And there's hardly anything here that's new for any of you. And it's going to be so tempting throughout all of the Gospels to say, oh, I forgot about that little minor detail. That was a nice reminder of that minor detail. And to constantly miss the wow moments that come with who Jesus is and what he's doing. So let's pray first that God will help us not miss these wow moments. And then we're going to read the scripture and then we'll jump in. So let's pray first. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. We take it for granted so often, and we assume too much, that we know too much, that we feel too much, when the truth is we know so little and we certainly feel so little. So through the power of the Spirit, we want you to join us now, open our eyes to the wow moments that are in this particular text and all the time in your word, that we would not get to the point where we are looking for the minor details and missing the truth that you are revealing to us. And we need your help for that. We cannot do it alone, so we're asking for it now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I'm about to read from Mark 2. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can hand Bibles out. You can just raise your hand. We've got Bibles like this in the back. There's one right there. I don't know if there's any. So I made a promise, but I don't see any ushers. In fact, great. You can have this one. This is perfect. I feel like Eratonis right now. No one else runs around the church. Okay. If there's any ushers in the back, I think we may have a few more Bibles coming out. Okay. Um, Mark 2, starting in verse 13. 2.13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he, he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. As he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This passage has essentially three primary characters in it. It has Jesus and in relationship the disciples. The next characters that get introduced is Levi, tax collectors and sinners. And then the third set of characters, there's Bibles in the back now. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Uh, yeah, good. See, we're, we're good. Thanks, guys. Um, third set of characters that comes in late in the story, and there's one in the very back corner back here, Sai, um, is the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees. These are characters that we all know well, but sometimes I fear that we, we, we miss the drama of these sorts of passages because we forget what they would have felt like originally. So we're, gonna, we're actually going to do a little fun something today to try to get ourselves involved. Um, has anyone ever been to a melodrama before? Like an old Western style. Nolan, you showed up anyway. Old Western style melodrama. So the, the old me Western melodrama is actually really fun because the secret is you've got these really simplistic characters. You've got the bad guy and you've got the good guy and whatever else. But the real secret for a melodrama is what? Audience participation, right? When the bad guy comes out, everybody does what? Boo. Yeah, come on. We're actually going to do it. I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And when the good guy comes out, we do what? Yay, right? And then there's some other little things here or there. And what we're going to do is we're going to do a melodrama with this passage to try to get at it. But what we're going to do, it's going to be fun. We're going to split it right here. And you guys are first century Jewish people listening to this story, okay? So I'm sorry some of you ate bacon for breakfast this morning. I should have let you know earlier. You might have mixed fabrics on. I'm sorry about all that. But you guys are going to respond to the passage according to the characters as they show up as if you were first century Jewish people. You guys are going to respond to the passage as the characters come up as contemporary Christians just like you actually are. So I'm assuming this side's smarter than you guys. You guys can't handle it. But this side over here, they're in my theatrics, I can just tell. Well, it's going to be really interesting 
what's going to be really interesting is we move through the passage, the times that there is, should be a very, very obvious, distinct difference between the response of these characters as they show up. And I think this will be insightful to us, or at least I pray that it will be as we move in. And we're going to kind of try to catch the wow moments in this passage through this experiment, um, through this melodramatic aspect. Okay, we ready? You think we can handle it? Is it going to be fun? I hope some of you will wake up for the first time, maybe. We'll see how it goes. Okay. Right at the beginning, verse 13, the very first character on the stage walks out. Is he? That's Jesus. How are you guys going to respond? How do you think you guys are going to respond? That's a way. I love it. We had some boos. We had some kind of half-hearted yays. That's right. You know what? I think for you guys, Jesus right now, you're not sold. You just don't know yet. He's like the, the figure in the spy movie that you know is really important, but you don't know if he's going to be the good guy or the bad guy. I'm serious, right? You know he's really important, but you have no idea what role he's going to play. But this group over here is like, yes, hero, walked onto the stage right off the bat. No question about it. What's the hero doing? He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Right, so we have Jesus teaching not uncommon for Jesus. Um, there's, a, there's another kind of aspect of a character, and that's the crowd. The crowd's actually really important throughout all of Mark. But here we have Jesus. The crowd is coming out to him. And the crowd's really important in this, in this gospel so far, hasn't it been? We see the crowd gaining on Jesus. Jesus is essentially gaining popularity, starting all the way from, let's say, verse 28 in chapter 1. His fame spread everywhere throughout the region of Galilee. Uh, verse 33, the whole city gathered together. Verse 37 of chapter 1, everyone's looking for you, Jesus. Right? And the, to the point that this, what we looked at last week, the start of, verse, of chapter 2, so many people are in the house, they can't even get the guy on the, the, that's paralyzed on the mat in, so they have to come through the roof. And so Jesus is at his, the, he's, the crowd is coming out to Jesus. You can almost imagine the city is like, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Oh, he's out by the lake. He's out by the sea. Well, let's go out to where Jesus is. Right, so the crowd is seeking Jesus, and Jesus is teaching them. But with that backdrop, actually ends up opening what's really cool about this passage, because in the very next verse, what happens? It moves from the crowd to a particular individual, just like a zoom lens, doesn't it? And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he rose, and he followed him. We move from this Big crowd seeking Jesus to zoom into one particular guy. And what's he doing? He's, he's at work. Right? He's not part of the crowd, is he? There's lots of reasons he's not part of the crowd. But one of them, he's not seeking Jesus. He hasn't gone out to the city. He's, he's doing whatever he's doing. Now, we don't know that much about this character, Levi. And here we have our second character. That's the tax collector, okay? Let me tell you what little we know about Levi, and then we're going to get your responses. We know that Levi, most likely, was also Matthew, who ended up writing the first gospel, right? Uh, we know that he is a kind of tax collector. Probably not the most important kind. Zacchaeus seemed to be a little bit higher of a kind of tax collector, but may have even been, because he's outside of the city, uh, in charge of collecting taxes on fishermen, which is kind of interesting. So character number two, Levi, comes out. How are you guys going to respond to Levi, the tax collector? Boo! No question, right? If, if you're in the crowd, you know without a shadow of a doubt this is the bad guy, right? There's no question in your mind. How are you guys going to respond? Yeah, half-hearted yay. 
That's a good half-hearted yay. Why? Well, it's like, well, we know Jesus ends up liking this guy. And our hero is Jesus. And since Jesus ends up liking this guy, he must be an all right guy. And he writes the Bible for all of that matter, right? We like the Bible. So we're going to like Matthew, right? And so that's what we're thinking. But here, we've got a nice little tension going on, don't we? These people are looking at you like, you're crazy. How in the world could you think that Levi, the tax collector, deserves anything but like hateful jeers and boos? He's so obviously the bad guy. Now, why is he so obviously the bad guy? Well, it's because he's a tax collector. And we all know from when we were, you know, we all know things about tax collectors. We know that tax collectors um, are viewed as traitors because they work for the Gentiles. We know that tax collectors will, they, they charge more than they should at times. We know that tax collectors are hated. But those things alone don't help me that much because hate's a pretty big word, isn't it? Like, hey, we, we mean a lot of different things with the word hate. Do you know who the most hated man in the United States is right now, according to polls? Donald Sterling, the owner of the basketball team, the Clippers, because he made some ra- horrible racial statements. He did. But that's a different kind of hatred than ISIS has, isn't it? Which is a different kind of hatred than Lakers have for the Celtics. But we use hatred in all three of those terms. And so what kind of a hatred do you guys have for tax collectors? And what we're trying to dig at here is, are you guys just horrible people that you hate tax collectors? What is wrong with you people? Why do you hate tax collectors? That's, that's what these people are tempted to think about you. I, I'm creating division in the church. This is not good. It's all just pretend, okay? It's not real. Um, here's why tax collectors are so poorly thought of. And this is actually really helpful. There's three different classes in the culture at this point. There's a middle class. It's very small. It's basically merchants and people like that. So Jesus, from being um, the son of a, wood, of, 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 of a carpenter, would be in the middle class. The fisherman would be a part of the middle class. Um, but there's not very many. Then there's the lowest class. The lowest class is usually only people who are lame, people who are beggars, people who are lepers. But the tax collectors fall in the lowest class. Interestingly, they're a part of the lowest class, but they actually have a lot of money. Right? So the lowest class is viewed culturally not only as their economic status, is all these other things. And of course, the highest class is going to be our Pharisees. So we see kind of a class distinction here. And you guys already know all this. The rest of us, this is something new for it. So they're the lowest class. It's a disgrace to become a tax collector to your whole family. Parents would tell their children, whatever you do, don't keep with murderers, thieves, or tax collectors. That's them fighting words, Right? That, that, is a, that is a category of, wow, that's how far down the rung there. They're ceremonially unclean like a leper, right? Like you cannot touch a tax collector and remain clean. Synagogues would not accept their money as offerings. You know you've messed something up if they don't even take your money anymore, right? That's usually, we'll, you'll, you'll take someone's money. We won't even take their money. They're, uh, in court, their testimony would not be accepted. And one of the reasons that our Jewish population here does not like tax collectors. It's not merely sorts of uh, caricatures of tax collectors. Those caricatures are largely true. Tax collectors are largely very immoral base people. It's just true. They largely will tax people according to however they want to see fit, and then they'll use that tax to, to throw huge parties for their friends who are other tax collectors and sinners. Now just think about that for a second. How frustrating would that be? 
just just this week, my wife and I made some financial planning stuff, just trying to think about, you know, hey, we need to try to start thinking about saving for this and whatever else. And we didn't have to in that conversation say, what if the IRS taxes us at five times what we think they should? Like, we didn't have to have that part of our planning. But can you imagine being a fisherman and you come in with your, with your catch and you see the tax collector and you're thinking, I don't know how much he's going to tax me. And if he taxes me extra, it might be because he's going to have a huge drunken party tonight he's trying to pay for. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? That would be incredibly frustrating. Incredibly. This is why you guys are so convinced that Levi or Matthew should deserve the booze. There's no question. And what's Jesus go up to this guy who deserves the booze? He says, follow me. Matthew, Levi goes and follows him. Let's think about it. This is really interesting. What's the crowd doing already? They're already going out to where Jesus is. They're already following. There's people in the crowd, I guarantee that we're thinking, wait, Jesus, wait. If you're going to call someone to follow you, call me. I came out to follow you. I'm following you around. I was in the house. I'm everywhere you are. And you go up to this guy, this tax collector, who apparently, from what little we have in this story, isn't even all that interested. And you zoom the lens on him and say, hey, you, follow me. You see how that might create some jealousy? Jesus is cool. He's got the crowd coming after him. He goes after this one guy. Follow me. Can you imagine the disciples? Anytime I think about the disciples' reactions, I like to think about Peter. Because Peter catches me the type of person that doesn't have silent thoughts. Right? I mean, this may be wrong, but I just, like, I think if, I, I would not have been surprised if when Jesus walks up and says, hey, Levi, tax collector, follow me. I wouldn't be surprised if you hear from the back, Peter going, oh, great, this guy. Right? Oh boy, our exclusive club just got a lot less exclusive. We're going to have to hang out with this guy for three years, right? There's just, there's no way that the disciples and the crowd, they're, they're all shocked by this. This is someone who is hated for good reason. And now maybe Peter could come to judge. Okay, all right, this is okay. We just have to have one of them. We're just going to have to be around one of these types of people, these tax collectors. I think I can stomach that. But the very next verse of the passage realizes, no, it's not just one of them, right? Because now they're in the house. He's reclining. Jesus is reclining at table. Many tax collectors and sinners are reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there are many who followed him. Now it's a full-blown infestation. Tax collectors and sinners. Not just one. Everywhere. Right? Now, as soon as we're... now. We're in the story now, right? We've got the Levi, the tax collector. Now we have the tax collectors and sinners. We're in their house. What are we thinking over here? Boo, this is a bad thing, right? This is an atrocious scene to be watching. Now over here, it's kind of interesting because the tax collectors and the sinners are largely for us as a category, just kind of something to make the story interesting. Because right? the story's all about Jesus. Sinners and the tax collectors are like, well, let's see what happens. Right? They're, they're just kind of fodder for the story. These, we recognize, there's something really atrocious going on. And one of the reasons that we recognize is what's happening here is so atrocious is because the culture of the day to recline at table with someone was a very intimate, honorable act. It, who you eat with is it culturally defined, isn't it? So in different cultures, eating with different people in their home means very, very different things. So I'm from Oklahoma, um, and my wife is as well. We spent time in Kentucky. While we were in Kentucky, we were with a lot of deep Southerners. And Southerners will have just kind of people, and it's almost like, hey, let's get to know you by having you come into our home. 
and having dinner. And we may never even see you again after that, right? It's, it's, and that's okay. It's understandable. That's just kind of culturally, that's, that's no problem with that. We did that one time here in Southern California to our neighbors who live next door to us. We had them into our home. We got to home. And later on, the, the wife said, you had us into your home and we weren't ready for that. Right? Now, I'm not criticizing her position. What happened is that we assumed one thing culturally for having someone into your home to eat that she, they felt like we were, in, we were inviting them into a close intimacy that we were never really intending to invite them into by having them into our home. Isn't that interesting? That happens all the time, doesn't it? Um, missionaries from the first service came up and said, in, in the Middle East where they worked, to go into someone's home and eat is to honor them with the highest honor. So that may be what's going on here too, right? Jesus is honoring now these tax collectors. It's very intimate in this first century world that Jesus is participating. It's almost like a full acceptance. I am fully accepting you and what you're doing. And that seems scandalous, doesn't it? What I just, given what I just said about tax collecting. And it's not just tax collectors. There's another category here, isn't it? The category of sinners. Now, sinners is a word that we, when we hear the Pharisees throw it around, we have all kinds of things in our mind, but the Pharisees and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they would use the word sinners, they mean primarily two different things. The, the big idea is uh, someone who is habitually breaking the law of God, right? Break that down a little bit that a sinner could be breaking the law in two different ways. It could be an actual moral sin, right? A thief who's deliberately continuing to steal would be a sinner because they're deliberately breaking the Ten Commandment of, of stealing and they're going to just continue doing it, right? But also fall into this category of sinners are people who aren't doing the ceremonial law. So if someone's not washing their hands the right way, the Pharisees would just, like regularly, the Pharisees would say, oh wait, you're a sinner. That's why Jesus is considered a sinner, isn't he? He's not committing any moral sins, but he's not following the traditions of the day. It's a little bit of a, of, a, of a confusion here, isn't there, between man's law and God's law and equating them together and some of the dangerous things that can come about from that. But here we have Jesus hanging out with an infestation of tax collectors and sinners with this intimate, honoring act of full acceptance, apparently, of sitting at their home and enjoying being with them. And now we have our last characters introduced, right? Verse 16. The scribes of the Pharisees have walked onto the stage. How are we going to respond over here? Boo! That wasn't even strong enough. You guys know these are the bad guys. How are we going to respond? There we go. Now, how are you guys going to respond? Yay! There's no question, actually. This is the first time in the story that we have a full-out, complete reversal. Right? You guys in the middle are going to start kind of looking at each other like, what's up with them? Because you guys are so thoroughly convinced these are the bad guys. You guys are so thoroughly convinced these are the good guys. And how they're going to come into the story is going to completely help us understand. Now, there's reasons that you know that they're bad guys. First of all, they've already shown up earlier in Mark 2, right? In Mark 2, they've already said, who can forgive sins but God alone? They're showing up again here. But there's reasons you guys think that they're good guys. Because even what they're saying in these passages are not that bad. What did they say earlier in Mark 2? They said, who can, who can forgive sins but God alone? Is that a horrible thing for them to say? Doesn't that seem to be like the point? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Like we're trying to, we're trying to do justice. Now what's their question here? It's, a, it's not a bad question, is it? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Is there anything wrong with that question? I think it's the exact question we should be asking. 
Now, no doubt in their hearts there was something going on. There was in both of these questions. But the actual question itself, taken at face value, is what? It's the exact right question to ask. Wait, you guys have missed the drama. You've missed how radical it is that Jesus is in the home eating with tax collectors and sinners. You've just missed it. But these people over here are about to fall out of their seats. It's so radical to them. And the fact that you're cheering for this guy makes them all the more nervous. How in the world can the hero be sitting with tax collectors and sinners in this intimate dining arrangement that seems to suggest full acceptance? How is that even possible? That's what they're getting at. And and we've missed it for all this time. A story that we've known so well. So the question is, why? Why is he doing this? Likely that the tax that the scribes and the Pharisees were not there. You have the Pharisees, the scribes are kind of like the, you know, the Gestapo of the Pharisees. They're kind of like the, the smaller class, and they're, they're kind of like feeling the need to go around and check on Jesus and what's happening. And it's likely that they weren't actually there in the room because they wouldn't have entered this room. But they hear about it or they see it from afar, or whatever else. They come to the disciples. I always think it's funny, right? The disciples are probably not all that happy to be in the room either. The disciples are feeling a little bit uncomfortable being there themselves. Like, man, there's just sinners and tax collectors all around us, right? And we're becoming ceremonially unclean and everything in their culture is just really weighing on them. So the scribes and the Pharisees come and say, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? It'd have been funny to actually get their answer because who knows what they might have said. It might have been, oh, I don't know. I kind of wish we weren't here, right? I mean, who knows what they would have said? But the question itself is actually a good question. There's nothing wrong with the question. The answer is really interesting. There's at least four different kinds of answers we could give. Let's run through these somewhat quickly. The first answer is, Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors with a full acceptance of their old sinful lifestyle. Right? So by Jesus honoring these people, he's saying, hey, I know that you sometimes steal money so that you can have a huge drunken party. That's cool. I think that's honorable. Right? That's one way to interpret Jesus eating with them. That's the way the Pharisees most likely interpreted it. Right? That was the way they most likely interpreted it. And they were right to be nervous about this. This is what they were nervous because Jesus shows what? He shows a lack of apparent wisdom on who he should associate with. And the Proverbs are full of what? Statements of be wise with who you have friendships with. Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. The companion of fools will suffer harm. This hero that you think is a hero, he's hanging out with sinners, with fools that's going to suffer him harm. Proverbs 12, 26. The way of the wicked leads them astray. Jesus is hanging out with sinful, wicked people in their minds. It's going to lead him astray. But those are legitimate concerns, legitimate biblical concerns. Now, I don't think many followers of Jesus, contemporary followers of Jesus, think that this is what Jesus was doing. Right? I don't think hardly any think, well, Jesus was fully accepting a sinful lifestyle. No, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think what's much more likely for contemporary followers is to go with the second one. And there's something like, Jesus was there to love. He wanted to show acceptance. He wanted to kind of um, be in the room and just kind of emit love and peace to these people that, that were sad and that needed love and peace. And I think there's some truth in this, but I, I think it kind of gets washed away a little bit, doesn't it? Because it's assuming that Jesus is kind of the weird, quiet monk in the corner. And he's just kind of in the room as a presence. And you hear people talk like this about Jesus and how we're supposed to be too. It's like, I just want to be a presence in our culture. Like, I don't want to condemn our culture. I don't want to call things sin, but I just want to be a, a transforming presence. 
and I'm going to be a weird monk in the corner that maybe kind of makes people feel like, don't look at that guy, What's, something's up with him, but let's just keep on partying, right? And I don't know about you, but I can't imagine Jesus just kind of allowing himself to be regulated to the side, knowing who he is and what his message is. And the way Jesus is introduced to us from the very beginning of Mark in verse 15 of chapter 1 is what? He's proclaiming the gospel, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I think Mark's trying to communicate that's Jesus' message. And even in this passage, he's introduced as what? Teaching the crowd. Now, I don't think he's there preaching, but I also don't think he's just kind of there saying, I'm just going to be Jesus in this group. And you hear people say that about us, don't they? In really weird ways. Our job is to be Jesus in our culture. Not to condemn not to point out sin, but just to kind of be an incarnational real presence with people that will somehow uh, mysteriously transform them without us ever really expressively talking about the gospel or, or some way like that. And I, I don't think that that works here. I think there's some biblical reasons it doesn't work. Jesus is talking about repenting. You have a, a good glimpse of this from Zacchaeus in Luke 19, right? That Zacchaeus gets sought out by Jesus in the same way that Levi has. But Zacchaeus, you actually, in the story of the party, you get a transformation. I'm going to give my money to the poor. Right? So you actually see there's transformation that's going on here. But I also think that, I think part of what doesn't work here is it overemphasizes the sort of association that we might have with Jesus. That's our particular problem, in my opinion. Is when we read the story as the melodrama, we like the hero and we associate primarily with the hero. To the point that we encourage what? Oh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Jesus would go to this party and be an incarnational presence. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to go to this party and be an be, be a presence, a presence of light and love. But there's theological problems with that, isn't it? Namely, we ain't Jesus. Right? There's just things that Jesus would do that I can't do. I can't say to my family, you know what? We're going to go to Catalina Island. You guys take the boat. I'll just walk. <laughs> I'm not going to say, did my friend cut your ear off? I'm so sorry. Let me just put that sucker back on. Right? There's just so many things. And if I said some of the things that Jesus said, I'd be a horrible person. Have you ever thought about this before? If I walked up to someone with a withered hand and said, hey, stretch out your hand. I'd be a horrible person, like the meanest junior high kid you've ever seen before, right? But Jesus can say, hey, stretch out your hand, because Jesus has the power to make the hand stretch out. Jesus can say to dead people, come out, because he can give the power through the command itself to obey that command. So, yes, we are to use Jesus as a model for how to live, but I think that this side of the room tends to overplay that and tends to miss who Jesus really was and who we're really to identify with, which is exactly what Mark's going to do with this passage soon enough. It's not just Jesus. It's someone else. And then we have Jesus' claim. Jesus answers the question. I would have loved to have known Peter's answer to this question. Uh, maybe we'll ask him someday in heaven. How are you going to answer that one, Peter? It would have been hysterical, I'm sure. Um, but Jesus doesn't give him the chance. Jesus answers it. When Jesus heard, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's two statements made here, isn't there? If you think you're well, you don't need a physician. I didn't come for people who are well or righteous. I came for sinners. And I think that what's happening here is this 
statement by Jesus recorded for us through Mark is immediately revealing that both sides of the room have associated with the wrong people. Who have you guys primarily associated with? The Pharisees. They're the good guys. And so the good guys, it's like, oh, like when Jesus says that to the Pharisees, now don't be mistaken. He's not saying, yeah, Pharisees, you guys are in fact righteous. I didn't come for you because you don't need me. That's not what he's saying. Like Jesus offends the Pharisees over and over again, right? Matthew 21, he says to the Pharisees, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. If anyone was really playing their part over here really well, they'd just run out right now or just fallen down on the floor. So that is, a, that is a, a shocking statement to the Pharisees. The sinners and the prostitutes, they will go into the heaven before you. That's exactly what he's saying here. And you guys are associating with the Pharisees like, oh, how did he do that? I can't believe it. It'd be like thinking I, that was so sacrilegious for him to actually say that. And you guys, because who do you associate primarily with? Jesus, the hero. And you're thinking, yeah, go get him, Jesus. You showed them, Jesus. But I think the point of this passage is we're both missing the boat. Because who are we supposed to be identifying with? The sinners and the tax collectors. All of a sudden, the characters are not on the stage pointing at one another. They've turned from the stage and pointed straight at us at the audience and say, you're the sinner. You're the tax collector. You're the one that needs a physician. You're the one. God shows his love to us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That's you. We over-associate with Jesus and you may have over-associated with the Pharisees, but isn't it funny that in our natural inclination, none of us said, oh man, Levi, that's me. The sinners, that's me. Helpless, hopeless, sick sinners. That's who I am in this story. No one automatically thinks that. Why? We don't like to think that we're sinners or sick. Like when we're sick, we don't like to think we're sick, right? We'll go through all kinds of things to talk about, oh, I'm not sick. As, as annoying as it is, I'm sure, for you nurses and doctors to have people ask for free medical advice, I can only imagine it's even more annoying when you know people are sick and they, don't, they try to self-diagnose. Oh, no, it's fine. I, my arm just dangles like this naturally, Right? I had, a, I had a staph infection on my side um, that I would picked up from my son when he first came from an Ethiopian orphanage. It was literally an African staph infection, right? It went for about four or five days while I was self-medicating. It was sprays. Maybe I get some air, right? Maybe it's a spider bite, right? And so this thing is, is growing. My wife at one point said, if it's like burning constantly, maybe you should go to the doctor. And I thought, well, I, I got it some air last night, so... That, I think, will help. And I said, okay, I'll go to the doctor, but we've got this fun party going on. It's an, it's an Ethiopian New Year party. I'll go to the party, and then I'll go to the doctor. I'm at a party with a staph infection, four days too late, having a great time. And finally, I said, yeah, this is kind of hurting. I think I'll go now. And when I got there, the doctor looked at me like I was an absolute idiot. Because I was. <laughs> right? Probably one of the mo- most challenging health concerns I'd had in my life went for a number of days while I was convincing myself, I got this. I'm on top of this. I got a spray. I put this bandage on it. That'll help it, right? Or whatever. It's just, and to realize we don't like being told that we're sick. We don't like being told that we're sinners. The Bible doesn't mind telling us that though, does it? Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. No one can understand it. We do the same thing with sin. 
You might not feel like you're sick, but you are. You may not feel like you're a sinner, but you are. That's what the scriptures tell us. You may feel like you associate with Jesus. No, you don't. You got it wrong. You associate with Levi and his sinful friends. You did not go out to find Jesus. Jesus came to find you. And Jesus is there for you. Now, here's the good news, right? It's so, it's like, oh, well, why does the Bible make us feel so bad about ourselves? Because the whole point of the story is not be Jesus. The whole point of the story is what? Jesus is your friend, even though you're a sinner. Jesus is a friend to sinners like you and like me. What do we try to do with our sin? try to ignore our sin, try to push our sin back. Sometimes we might even feel our sin and say, no, no, I don't want to deal with it right now. Sometimes we might want to just ignore our sin, whatever else. We all do these things, but we need to realize, you know what? The very best thing is to confess my sin. That's exactly, that's the whole point, right? I know I need a physician because I'm a sinner. But the good news is, is I have one in Jesus. Jesus came to love sinners. Jesus came while we were yet sinners. That Timothy passage that we looked at earlier, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance, Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What beautiful, beautiful good news to be reminded. I'm going to close this in prayer. I'd love for grace group shepherds and deacons or anyone else of leadership we have at least a couple, maybe males and females, to come up here and right, go ahead now and put these on. If you'd like to pray with somebody, come up and find someone that's wearing one of these. Um, I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit does two things. Helps us see who we're to associate in this passage with, the sinners, but not walk out depressed and discouraged by that fact. No, walk out being reminded, Jesus came to love sinners like me and like you, and ultimately to give his life for them. So let me pray, and then we're going to sing and encourage one another of Jesus' love for us as sinners. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what a beautiful passage. I pray that you'll help us to be awed by your grace and your love here for sinful people like us. God, I pray that you'll help us to see our need for Jesus, namely that we're sinners and that we're sick, but then that we can glorify and enjoy the fact that Jesus is a friend to sinners just like he was to these. And he's promised to do the same for us. Do that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.